Ahoy there, comrades. Uh, thank you so much to all of the listeners who have been really, really patient over the past year and a half. Um, I know it's been a while since I've been putting out any regular content, um, and uh, it's been a mixture of mental health, physical health stuff, um, and I uh, just wanted to, again, thank you all for uh, sticking around and um, waiting patiently. Um, the Guatemala Cuba series will continue. Um, the next episode, uh, I keep, uh, getting waylaid by health problems, but, um, it is honestly, it's almost done. I'm almost ready to record it. I expect it should be ready. Hopefully sometime early summer, June-ish would be great, but I don't want to make any promises at this point because, um, again, the, the health issues are better, but, uh, I'm still, he um, healing and still recovering from some long-term, um, issues I've been having. Um, brain is doing better. Body is still, uh, whew, is, is in rough shape, but you know, I will heal. And, uh, uh, I'm hoping that in the near future, I'll be able to start putting out more regular content. Um, but at the very least, the next episode is going to be, <laughs> it's going to be enough content for what I would usually be putting out in a year and a half anyway. So I guess you can call that a catch up. Um, but in the meantime, um, I'm going to have Adam Patterson back on the show, longtime friend of the show, uh, to talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And then the two of us are just going to do our best to provide some historical context um, for how we uh, got to this moment. Um, I didn't want to rush putting out something about uh, Ukraine just for the sake of it. So, um, you know, at this point, uh, there could be some big uh, news developments on that front in the near future, in which case this episode might feel a little bit, um, you know, out of date. But we mainly focus on background history. So hopefully this will be a helpful resource for anybody, but particularly uh, anti-imperialist leftists trying to figure out what is the principal stand to take um, in this, uh, you know, really, really unfortunate, uh, tragic uh, invasion that's been going on for about a little over two months now, uh, in Ukraine. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that is all for today. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for joining. This is the movements discussion show Stalin for time. Haha. <laughs> yes, it's a joke. Um, and then the main show will be resuming, uh, this summer aiming for June. But, um, if it's later than that, you can blame, uh, chronic health for that. Um, but in the meantime, thank you so much. And, uh, here is Adam Patterson. I'd like to welcome back to the show, and um, actually, honestly, I'd like to wel welcome both of us back to the show um, after, uh, I guess it's been a little over two years since the last time we did, or about two years since the last time we did a Stalin for Time um, period. But I, yeah, welcome back to the show to Adam Patterson. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you, Kenny. I can speak on both of our behalves. It's great for us to be here. Yeah, yeah, no. It's in the last two years. It's 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 been a hell of a time. So um, I'm glad to be doing this again, uh, and hopefully we'll get to do this a little bit more often um, in the future. Uh, but yeah, let's let's get right to it, dude. Um, so yeah, gosh, at this point, so we're recording today. Um, it is actually the day before uh, May 9th, uh, Victory Day in the Russian Federation. So um, if any big news happens by the time you're listening to this, um, sorry, we missed it because uh, we're a little bit day early. I have no idea what the hell is going to happen tomorrow. I've been reading all the speculation, but um, I guess we'll all find out together. Um, 
But yeah, I wanted to have you on, Adam, um, as someone who uh, is a researcher and who works and has focused on um, the Chechen wars in particular. And, um, you know, not just talking about wars, but talking the broader implications, um, the larger context for the breakup of the Soviet Union, um, you know, the rise of Putinism. Uh, shock therapy, all that good stuff. Um, past listeners of the show, you might have a little bit of background on the Russian Revolution, but uh, um, not so much background on later Soviet and early uh, Russian Federation history. But um, Adam is here to give us a quick little summary of basically how did we get here uh, to this current situation with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, so Adam, why don't you just get us started? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh I think we should start with a quick breakdown on the history of Ukraine and how Ukraine became Ukraine. And Ukraine is a country, a classic example of a country that both has its own distinct cultural and linguistic identity, but it also has a history of being absorbed or subjugated by neighboring empires. Uh, prior to the Soviet era uh, leading into that, Ukraine had been absorbed by both uh, Austria-Hungary uh, and Imperial Russia, as well as by Poland. Um, and Imperial Russia, you know, the Tsarist dynasty that existed then, it ruled an empire stretching at its height from the far east bordering China and Korea, as well as at its most westward expansion into the eastern portions of uh, Ukraine that it had absorbed by the 18th century. So leading into World War One, um, prior to the Russian Revolution, what is now modern territorial Ukraine was split between three um, more external, relatively more powerful empires. Um, and the areas that were controlled by Tsarist Russia correspond pretty closely with the areas of Ukraine that have much deeper ethnic and lingu linguistic ties to Russia and were, at least prior to the invasion, much more sympathetic to Putin's Russia. Um, Ukraine also occupies an interesting place in Europe because it was highly sought after territory in large part because the soil and the weather conditions were unusually friendly to growing huge quantities of grain. Um, in terms of its impact on, on social and political structures, this turned Ukraine into what was uh, often called the breadbasket of Europe, and it still very much is. Um, and it's, again, social structures reflected this, um, especially going into World War I and the pre-Soviet era. Ukraine basically had a feudal social system where the majority of the peasant farmers lived on land owned by various aristocrats or barons of some kind who were oftentimes rightly seen as predatory and exploitative and who had inordinate control over the lives and the products of the labor of people who lived on their land. Um, this actually would, would birth a really interesting left-wing anarchist movement uh, and the establishment of what was an attempt at a stateless anarchist society in southeastern Ukraine at the behest of anarchist militant and revolutionary who's to this day seen as a national hero named Nestor Makhno, um, who appealed to the subjugated peasant farmers of Ukraine and in kind of the dissolution and chaos of World War I uh, between 1918 and 1921, uh, Makhno and his, his cohort uh, formed a libertarian socialist society under which 7 million Ukrainians lived. Um, and these areas had kind of an alliance of convenience with the Soviets during the Russian Revolution, kind of that vacuum of the post-Tsarist era is how they're able to emerge at all. Before those areas were subjugated under the central authority of the Bolshevik ruling party in Moscow, and they extended the Red Terror into Ukraine, where the libertarian socialist communes were, were shattered and subjugated, and uh, the, the Bolsheviks captured and shot a lot of Ukrainian anarchists. Um, so that all plays into the, again, the part of the very complicated relationship between Russia and Ukraine. And after um, the Bolsheviks subjugated the libertarian socialist movement in Ukraine, Lenin himself ordered the, cre the creation of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, um, which pretty much territorially codified what is now modern day Ukraine. 
Um, Ukraine would go on to be invaded pretty brutally by the Nazis in World War II and temporarily subject to control by the Third Reich, uh, and also undergoes a pretty horrific local execution of the Holocaust against both Ukrainian Jews and, and Romani. I think the majority of Jews living in the USSR who were killed during the Nazi aggression into eastern Ukraine were, East, were Ukrainian Jews. Um, with estimates that maybe up to 1.5 million Ukrainian Jews were killed during World War II, the vast majority obviously by the Third Reich, but some by local partisans as well. Um, but after that, you know, after the the Soviets re reconquered and pushed out the Nazis, um, things were pretty quiet for Ukraine after that, and the country remained ruled by a series of Soviet-allied allied administrations until the collapse of the USSR in about 1991. And when that happened, Ukraine declared itself independent in 1991 and held its first post-Soviet presidential elections that year. Um, but unfortunately, it was as was the case across a lot of former USSR states, the collapse of, of the USSR was followed by a lot of economic downturn in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine also, over time, sought to build greater connections with the European Union and NATO, um, though never formally joining either. Um, Ukraine's shaky post-USSR transition to liberal democracy was was troubled also by allegations of corruption in the 2004 presidential election between Viktor Yushchenko and Viktor Yanukovych, where there were allegations of corruption and electoral fraud in favor of Yanukovych, who had emerged as a much more pro-Russian candidate, whereas Yushchenko was seen as much more aligned with NATO and uh, the EU, EU and the United States. And after a series of protests and counteractions, Yanukovych um, uh, was declared uh, the winner in 2004, um, though Yushchenko, um, the um, who, who is, excuse me, the, uh, excuse me, Yanukovych, I'm sorry, I'm kind of like flubbing that one up a bit. No worries. Um, the, the much more pro-Russian candidate who's aligned with the country's oligarchs would go on to be elected president of Ukraine in 2010. And kind of the final act of political upheaval in Ukraine prior to the Russian invasion was a series of clashes between um, the kind of the anti sort of Russian opposition and Ukraine security forces that were aligned with the more pro-Russian administration. Um, and this resulted in the overthrow of the, the more pro-Russian administration in 2014 and the creation of what is now Ukraine's current government, which has a much more pro EU and pro-US and opposition to Russia stance. And these events were called the Maidan Revolution. And actions uh, by the current Ukrainian government in the aftermath managed to piss off a lot of ethnically Russian and Russian-speaking communities in eastern and southern Ukraine in particular, such as the censorship and expulsion of certain Russian-language media channels and organizations. Um, in the Maidan Revolution, aka what happened in 2014, um, was also followed by a lot of pro-Russian and anti-government demonstrations, again, in the south and east of Ukraine. These were initially largely indigenous um, native protests that were then provided support from Russia in the wake of, again, the pro-Russian government being ousted in 2014, which then turned into what has been called the Donbass insurgency, which featured both uh, Russian-backed local insurgents as well as what became pretty obviously the presence of Russian special operators in the region. And that simmering insurgency throughout the Russian bordering and Russian sympathetic parts of Ukraine that were opposed to the less, you know, the more NATO and EU friendly government that still exists and of which um, the current administration is a part of Zelensky, um, that continued uh, through the invasion about like almost eight years of fighting um, and would claim the lives of about 14,000 combatants across both sides, uh, over 3,000 civilians, and would even, even before the invasion internally displace over 1.5 million Ukrainians and result in about 1 million Ukrainians fleeing abroad. 
So Ukraine over the past two decades has, again, feel free to call me up and tell me, you know, listeners, if you think I'm completely full of it. But over the past two decades has, from my rendering, has unfortunately been kind of a classic example of an ostensibly non-aligned state being put in the position and treated as a, as a buffer and even a political football between two much more powerful entities on each side of it. You know, that being NATO and the EU bloc to the West and the ascendant and revanchist Russian Federation to the East. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people who may not be as familiar with the region look at this and what just happened in 2022 and think, oh, God, war has broken out in Ukraine. It's when in reality, no, there's been a lot of active, very harsh insurgency um, in the the often pro-Russian border regions that had been stewing for, you know, eight, seven, eight years at this point. And that's kind of what brought us to this particular moment. Thank you so much for that. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, obviously that is a lot of history that's compressed into whatever that was about five minutes or so. So thank you for that. Um, I would have gone on and rambled on for hours. Um, so I wanted to let's take this bit by bit here. Um, I, I think so. This is an aside here. I remember when in the early days of this current uh, invasion of the rest of Ukraine happened, um, uh, I think for me, my sort of reaction to what was going on was you know, my background is studying, you know, I studied the Russian Revolution. That's what I know the best. Later, Russian history was something that I was a little bit uh, in post-Soviet history, not quite as up to date on. So I spent the last couple of months really hitting the books. Uh, I read um, uh, Vladislav Zubok's most recent book, Collapse, on the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. um, I dusted off uh, The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein. Um and I think for me, my sort of question was trying to piece together the question of, um, you know, is, is, you know, is this really a proxy war between the U.S. and NATO and Russia? Or is this just Russian unabashed imperialism, proto-fascism invading, you know, uh, its neighbor uh, seeking to, you know, ethnically cleanse or whatever? And like these different narratives and just feeling like. Um, the way that the American and bourgeois media in particular has been covering this has been confusing what has been going, you know, what the reality of what's been going on there. In particular, a lot of the allusions to, uh, oh, this is Vladimir Putin rebuilding the Soviet Union or um, or sort of saying like uh, there is, you know, no responsibility whatsoever on the side of the West um, mm -hmm. for the current situation. Um, so let's, you know, let's, let's try to figure out and give some context for our listeners. Cause I think particularly for those on the left, and I think most of the people who listen to this would consider themselves left adjacent at the very least. I, I want to sort of help us sort of figure out, cause I know a lot of people on the left are having trouble coming up with principled positions on this. Um, and you know, I think we've, you know, over the last few years, longtime listeners will know you and I, we're not huge fans of like the the enemy of the U S is automatically our allies approach. So like, you know, we, we both pr pr took pretty clear stands on being against the Assad regime, uh, in our episodes that we've done on Syria in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so let's, let's bring things back to, um, the, the eighties and the nineties and talk about that for a little bit. So when I was researching and getting ready for this episode, um, I think one of the things that I was struck by was the extent to which, um, the Soviet Union's collapse wasn't so much like, you know, it wasn't 
you know, there's a lot of factors at play, um, but that it was not actually something that was inevitable in any way at all. It was a deliberate series of decisions that people made um, at the highest levels of leadership um, and, that, and that ultimately the, Soviet, the, the, the main sort of backbone of the Soviet system as far as having a planned economy and uh, large public sector, um, large social safety net, those sorts of things were pretty goddamn popular, not just mm-hmm. in Russia um, when looking at the uh, the referendums that were happening in 1991 in the countries that part uh, in the um, uh, I don't know, countries, Soviet federal republics, whatever you want to call them, that participated in the referendum on whether or not to keep the Soviet Union together or not. Um, they all said yes. Um, f- you know, some as high as like 70 and 80 ish percent um, saying that they wanted to maintain the union. And then nonetheless, it collapsed. So to bring it to specifically to Ukraine, could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, people comparing uh, modern day Russia, Putin's Russia to a resurgence of the Soviet empire, as some people would put it. And um, could talk a little bit about what is the actual relationship between uh, the Soviet Union and the Ukrainian people and how that relationship changed after the fall of the Soviet Union between uh, the Russian Federation and the Ukrainian state. Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate that background, both your description of what happened near the end of the Soviet Union, but also lining out the principles that it's entirely possible to both be skeptical of, of American empire, but also skeptical, to put it mildly, of American empire, but also to realize that just because a state or a regime is opposed to the U.S. does not automatically mean it's, you know, acting in full and total righteousness. That's why, like, you know, my my feelings in the Syrian conflict are so deeply complicated and why my feelings about this are in certain ways complicated. Um, but to, yeah, get to the questions of, of modern Russia and how modern Russia became modern Russia. So many American academics, commentators, pundits, broadcasters very much have cold war brainworms, which is that they, they're somehow convinced that Russia as it exists now, at least subconsciously, it's basically the USSR and it's very much not. Um, and again, you, you gave a good preemption there. The USSR collapsed for, for a whole host of complicated re- reasons in 1991, which essentially marked the geostrategic victory of the United States in the NATO coalition, which, again, let's be honest, NATO is, is an extension of U.S. power through a network of aligned states. Um, and it is in this vacuum, um, the collapse of the USSR, that modern Russia, as we know, it was formed uh, in large part because the U.S. under the Clinton administration took an almost plunderous role towards Russia in the wake of the USSR's collapse, um, especially towards its economy. Um, Boris Yeltsin, name probably rings a bell, emerged as the first president of the Russian Federation, um, succeeding Gorbachev as the the final Soviet premier. And it it looks like um, as the USSR was transitioning um, to kind of a post, you know, a post-Soviet model, it sounds like a lot of Russians were hoping for something more akin to like social democracy. Um, And it didn't get that. Um, It was, you know, push into again it would require three episodes unto itself to line this out but essentially reader's digest version pushed um into a you know harsh form of ultra privatized neoliberalism out the gate you know with the ussr having collapsed in its command economy with it it left an open vacuum for the u.s as a now uncontested singular global hegemon to essentially dictate and shape russia's new economic model um this resulted in a radical and jarring shift within russia's political economy where industries that were previously managed as state-owned public sector were abruptly shifted to private control and private profitization, 
which led to an almost complete polarity shift in the nexus of economic power and control in Russian society, where those who took advantage of this change to snap up control of industry emerged as a new capitalist oligarchy class practically overnight. Um, so in a way, Russia's economic and political reorganization was almost like a capitalist speed run, um, where control of industry, resource, and profit were funneled into an increasingly small cadre of private ownership at the enabling and direction of state policy, you know, banding this along. Um, something that has arguably been happening in the U.S. on a comparatively more gradual basis. Um, I think one of the understated aspects of the ostensible U.S.-Russia geopolitical competition is that it's occurring between two countries who are essentially both capitalist oligarchies of a different form. Um, you know, and while this was happening, you know, the experience for the vast majority of Russians um, was one of like immense precarity and loss of quality of life and personal security, as as you hinted at. You know, it was felt distinctly as a national humiliation, both, you know, I guess you could say, I mean, not to get too foo-foo about it on a spiritual level, but also in a very real material way. Like all the all the shitty crude jokes people have made about, you know, Russian prostitutes and Russian male order brides um, emerged from the fact that, you know, Russian women lost a lot of the security they had under the Soviet system and, you know, had to, you know, turn to sex work or even like trying to like hitch themselves to wealthy foreigners. Um, in kind of the desperation of the aftermath, for example. Um, and, you know, it was widely perceived, kind of putting that particular example to the side, that the U.S. was, was alternately dancing on Russia's grave and picking over its corpse um, in the 90s, um, and and turning it, sort of creating, a as, as we talked about, a, a highly aggressive form of, of ultra-capitalism in the aftermath. Um, Russia now has one of the worst rates of economic inequality of any relatively far wealthy nation, um, and it's it's again turned into a deeply capitalist country with an authoritarian right wing government that maintains control of wealth through a privatized capitalist milieu, uh, one under which the holders of capital maintain a very close relationship with the government. Um, you you might say it sounds familiar and you know sounds U.S., but it's it's even more extreme to the point where it's less that the capitalist class dictates policy as they do in the u.s as a where it's a little bit of a switch where it's reached the point where those in power in russia kind of like maintain partnership or even dominion over um the oligarchs it seems to have kind of switched a little bit um and putin emerged amidst this vacuum um he first came to power as russia's prime minister in 1999 um he cut his chops and we'll probably touch on this later helping oversee the resubjugation of chechnya uh following the region's temporary breakaway from the russian federation following the Second World, uh, Second Chechen War, during which Russia basically reconquered the region at, at you know, Putin's oversight through overwhelming massive violence. Um, and, and Putin has, you know, as he's, you know, ascended to power over the past God, you know, nearly two and a half decades at this point, um, has also formed a close relationship and bond with Russian's oligarch class, aka the kind of plunder capitalists who siphoned up a lot of formerly state-owned capacities for their own private enrichment. And he's, he first merged his powers with power with theirs before coming to assert dominion even over them as, as the years have gone on. Um, and kind of unfolding this at the moment, again, readers digesting it some more, Putin has um, maintained in political power in some form since the late 90s and has only increasingly centralized political and economic authority around himself to the point where it's you can make a very strong argument he's emerged as Russia's you know, de facto dictator singularly centralizing both political power and control of capital around himself. You know, while, while exact sums can't really be pinned down, it looks like Putin's personal wealth is estimated to be potentially no less than 70 billion U.S. dollars, which is nothing to sneeze at. So, like, in essence, like, Russia's modern system has turned into, again, a right-wing capitalist dictatorship and one that has increasingly been ruled by the whims and determination of one figurehead. 
Um, and in kind of an odd reflection of the U.S. again, it's obviously not parallel societies. Russia also has a powerful right-wing reactionary and social and political movement as well. Russia's government is fiercely anti-LGBTQ, um, anti-feminist. Like the government, you know, decriminalized domestic violence back in 2017, um, to give you a picture here. Um, and on top of that, you know, it's also emerged concurrent, as you hinted at, to a kind of a, a Russian imperial movement within um, Russia itself. That, you know, seeks to uh, reassert territorial control and dominion, but not through a, you know, a Soviet model, but through something that harkens more towards like, if you want to get a parallel here to the czarist era, and one that sees Ukraine as including and Putin has pointed this out, like the creation of territorial Ukraine under Lenin and the Bolsheviks as a, a transgression and, and a fraud against, you know, Russia's dominion, like Putin has said this outright. Um, and the belief that Ukraine essentially belongs to Russia and is Russian. Um, so, yeah, you have all these various forces emerging um, in a country that has lost a lot of its former territory and prestige in the eyes of its current leadership and is looking to reassert itself on the world stage. And again, is a, a capitalist oligarchy, you know, centered now almost exclusively on the determination of a singular person, a.k.a. Putin. So hopefully I hope that kind of gives kind of a, a breakdown here. Oh, for uh, sure. Yeah. Of kind I of what we got at to at this point. And I think I think for me, what was interesting uh, upon reviewing, and I knew some of the some of the big hits already, but um, so you mentioned uh, Boris Yeltsin, and like for me, you know, I, I was born in '86. For me, my memories of what do I remember about Boris Yeltsin was uh, that he was a drunk. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> he was sort of a punchline, and yeah. then I was, but then actually taking the time to learn about his political significance. And um, his part in the collapse of the Soviet Union and the creation of the modern, um, you know, now what became Putin's Russia and the Russian Federation. Um, I was shocked at the extent to which um, the extent to which that uh, Boris Yeltsin was directly involved in the destruction of any possibility that some sort of healthy democratic system could have come after yeah. the collapse of the Soviet Union. Like, and you know, I'm a big old red. So in my, you know, if you ask me, I'm like, well, duh, <laughs> you know, that of course, yeah. you know, what was going to come after the Soviet Union was not going to be uh, something uh, was not going to be something positive, but like, you know, for, for the sake of argument, let's say um, it was possible. And I think it could have been possible to establish some sort of, as you mentioned, European style, social democratic system, in the Russian Federation would have still had a lot of issues as do the countries of Western Europe. Um, right. uh, it, it certainly do, but you know, for the sake of argument, that certainly would have been better than what we have now. And um, I was, I was, I think a lot of our listeners, um, particularly Americans are probably not aware that there was a massive protest movement that arose in the early nineties, against the shock privatization and uh, uh, the the program to privatize the hell out of Russia. Um, and that the way that Yeltsin responded to this was ultimately when you had a situation where the Duma, the parliament, was opposing, um, I believe he, he had a, a, some sort of emergency rule put in at that time so that he could implement and rush through and just like shove these uh, privatization uh, program down the throats of the Russian people. Um, the parliament was opposed to it. And how did Yeltsin respond with, you know, U.S. support was to send a bunch of tanks to surround and then ultimately fire on the Duma. And I think Americans don't understand that, like, 
if you were to imagine a situation where the United States, um, where let's say Trump had been, you know, able to like really gut, you know, even obviously Trump things were bad under Trump, but if Trump had like been really fully gutting the whatever semblance of public, you know, public unions uh, and public spending, um, whatever limited, you know, we're it's not the Soviet economy, but we have some nice stuff in this country, um, and if if Congress had opposed to it, and and if Trump had then been like, I'm going to surround Congress with a bunch of tanks and then attack it. And then after that point, you know, go ahead and continue this program. Um, mm-hmm. That's essentially what happened. And I think a lot of Americans don't realize Putinism didn't start under Putin. Yeah. Like, obviously, we we say Putinism because he's the most public face. He really codified a lot of the worst aspects of what happened to the chaos of the 90s and like really you know, putting his own authoritarian, you know, you know, particular uh, on on Russia. Um, remembering that this process started in the 90s and it, it recalls um, particularly reading uh, Naomi Klein's book. I mean, she straight up makes the comparison to Pinochet in Chile. Oh, yeah. Um, I think her her quote I have here was Russia wasn't a repeat of Chile. It was Chile in reverse. Uh, in huh. terms of whereas in Chile, you have Pinochet staged a coup. Uh, actually, I have the co- quote right here. It says, uh, Pinochet staged a coup, dissolved the institutions of democracy, and then imposed shock therapy. Yeltsin imposed shock therapy in a democracy, then could defend it only by dissolving democracy and staging a coup. Both scenarios earned enthusiastic support from the West. Uh, and then quoting from uh, a headline from the Washington Post a day after the coup, Yeltsin receives widespread backing for assault. Boston Globe mm-hmm. goes with Russia escapes a return to the dungeon of its past. And then she quotes uh, the U.S. Secretary of State Warren Christopher, who traveled to Moscow um, and in the presence of Yeltsin declares the United States does not easily support the suspension of parliaments, but these are extraordinary times. Uh, could, could you respond to that for a moment? Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate you, you bringing that up because like that, that is a very important bunch of context. Um, and again, like I actually admittedly, I've actually not read the shock doctrine by Naomi Klein. I only know it through various excerpts and, and analysis because it's just such a, a brilliant book that's been been referenced a lot of other places. But that's essentially it. Like you had had shock doctrine creating the vacuum through which modern um, Russia emerged uh, and through which Putin uh, Putin rose. Um, and it is it was one that was radically destabilizing and, and produced a collective national trauma um, from which the so many of the dysfunctions and miseries of modern Russian society can be credited to. Um, and something else I also kind of want to bring up uh, as well is 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 NATO in in post in in during this time as well, like how NATO is 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 acting in, in the decade and decade or two after the collapse of the USSR, if you don't mind delving into that for a sec. Mm-hmm. By all means. So, like, again, like, I think for, for a lot of your listeners, like, and again, this is, I guess, a little bit more my my era, you know, talking about strategy and states and militaries. But NATO was formed in the wake of, of World War II as um, essentially a defensive pact. Um, and um, there was originally before, again, a bit of context, uh, there was originally before um, before the formation of NATO, there was discussion 
on the U.S. side of things and on the Russian side of things of having like essentially a detente or even kind of quasi alliance. I mean, I'm going to have to look this this up again, but it's entirely possible that that Stalin may have hinted at that, you know, he wanted he wanted kind of a de-escalation. And this is Stalin of all people. But of course, that <laughs> for whatever reasons, both, I think, due to the the, the situation at hand and the death of FDR, um, that you know, fell by the wayside and, and NATO emerged as a, a explicitly Cold War anti-USSR alliance of states in Europe um, and North America, which which came to include Turkey in time as well. And NATO persisted after the fall of the USSR, after the fall of its essential sensible reason for existing. Um, but not only did NATO persist after the USSR collapsed and the USSR, as, you, as we talked about, fragmented, but NATO expanded like the the alliance that was designed to nominally confront or contain Russia, like you can go back to uh, Kennan, George Kennan's doctrine of quote unquote containment, which was focused on the U.S. and and allied nations and regimes containing Soviet influence. Once the Soviet Union was gone, NATO expanded. It only got more powerful and 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 broad reaching. Um, and what's interesting though is Russia of Russian Federation actually asked to join NATO. Um, after the fall of the USSR, but was denied entry. Um, so as the shock doctrine is happening, as these various um, forms of, in many ways, internally imposed, if not uh, externally uh, assisted forms of, of radical shifts into, into this brutal, punishing neoliberal model are happening, Russia is being deliberately shoved away from forming closer ties with nominally, formerly opposed countries. Um, I think Boris Yeltsin himself sent... Uh, a letter to um, NATO uh, in, in 1991 suggesting that Russia's long-term aim was to join NATO. Like George Robertson, a former UK defense secretary who led NATO between 1999 and 2003, said, uh, to, said that Putin also made it clear to him during the first meeting that he wanted Russia to join NATO. So even mm -hmm. like as late as, as the, the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, Putin himself, I think, made some hints that he wanted to join NATO. Like you could probably remember, um, we can all go back to this. Um, George Bush, um, George Bush the second, spoke very fondly of Putin. Like we all know that. Oh, know, that look, kind of, I can see into his soul. I looked into his yes. soul. <laughs> I looked into his soul and knew he was a good man, and so forth. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's, that's that's a strange little bit of history there. That I think we need to go into, but also at the same time, as Russia is being deliberately kept out of NATO, there's that old line um, about NATO that the purpose of NATO was to keep the Germans in and the Russians out. <laughs> You know, um, and that's, you know, because Germany would quickly emerge as as the is the one of the most powerful economic centers in Europe. Um, well, at the same time, again, Russia, even the post, you know, Cold War era was being like kept out of NATO. While this is happening, NATO is continuing to expand closer and closer geographically to Russia, like starting at the beginning of his second term in 96. Bill Clinton, who had given his blessing and power behind shock therapy under Yeltsin, made NATO expansion a critical part of his foreign policy and explicitly called on former Warsaw Pact countries to join NATO. Um, you know, previously during the Cold War, NATO's eastern flank stopped at West Germany, like stopped there. And the only other NATO countries that bordered the USSR were Greece and Turkey. Um, and after the fall of the USSR, NATO grew to encompass Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, as well as a whole host of other Baltic and Balkan states, including Latvia and Estonia, like right on Russia's border. Um, to the point the only nominally non-NATO states uh, buffering NATO from Russia in Eastern Europe are Ukraine and Belarus, with Belarus effectively being a Russian client state at this point. Um, 
And, you know, native expansion, again, something that preempted a lot of how we got here, um, especially as it buttressed up against Russia, even within the U.S., interestingly enough, NATO expansion was a pretty controversial idea um, and found opposition, like even outside of the distant left, like Henry Kissinger, that blood soaked monstrosity of all people <laughs> would call it into question. Like I could I can't do a good uh, Kissinger voice. He was like, I, I think expanding NATO might be a bad idea. Um, but he would like critique NATO expansion. <laughs> On the grounds, Russia would see it as a security threat and direct encroachment on its sphere of influence. And, you know, in the classic case of a broken clock being right, Kissinger was correct there. Like NATO expansion has very much been seen as a threat by a Russia that was also deliberately kept out of NATO. So you have former USSR territories um, and, and, you know, states being brought into NATO while at the same time, you know, um, you know, NATO and the U.S. particularly are just throwing a middle finger at Russia and saying, no, this is not you um, out of here. Um so a cold from so from a totally like cold-eyed strategic perspective, I'm not saying this is quote unquote good, but from just pure cold strategic logic, Russia stoking in an insurgency in like the eastern parts of Ukraine, aka like the Donbass region, was an effort basically to maintain an irritant on NATO's eastern flank and try to create some form of buffer between itself and a military and diplomatic bloc that had made itself pretty clear was not Russia friendly and, and Russia was not a part of. Um so that's a whole again, a whole other like kind of reader's digest summary. Uh, of, of how we, we got here, if that kind of helps round things out some. Yeah. And I think so. One of the things I take away from that is, um, you know, with the le- I think, you know, we talked about a little bit about um, people on the left who very quickly, instantly adopted the Russian line about what was the reason for the invasion of Ukraine um, mm-hmm. and talking about, oh, it's about NATO expansion and I think so for me, I think ultimately the actual full on invading the whole of the country, trying to take Kiev and, um, you know, the events of the last two months, I feel like you have to say that's that is the responsibility of Vladimir Putin and nobody else. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, that decision. Um, But when you look at the larger last 30 years of what's been going on, um, I do think we do need to seriously, critically look at the role of the United States and uh, and with the EU and NATO bloc countries in creating this situation. And I think one thing that I think we, we should all remember is that, like you said, Putin and, and the Russian Federation wanted in on the benefits of being a member of NATO. And I think that in itself should tell us a lot about why NATO is not a good thing, not something we should support. And, and you know, I think there's been a lot of talk about like, you know, I've seen some people using rhetoric about like, you know, if you ever wondered what you would do when Hitler invaded Poland, you know, you're doing it now and people wanting to make the comparison. And I think, you know, if you're talking about a Nazi invasion, um, you know, comparing things to World War Two. Yeah, I think if you accept that comparison, then you basically have to accept total war. And mm-hmm. a total war with unconditional surrender. People don't seem to remember that part of the analogy was the relevance of going up against an enemy like Hitler was that the stated policy of the United States was unconditional surrender uh, to the point mm-hmm. where people uh, such as Alan Dulles, who were trying to negotiate with Nazis to come with a negotiated settlement during that war, could have been prosecuted and probably you know, if 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 uh, FDR had not died in office when he did, uh, potentially there could have been some prosecutions for treason to people like Alan Dulles for trying to come to with a negotiated settlement settlement uh, with the Nazis. So I think for me, it's like we have to 
be more tempered and not yeah. get caught up in like the passion of and granted Putinism, Vladimir Putin is far is a far right nationalist. I, I think that is absolutely correct. Um but at the end of the day, I think a lot of the third world countries, the developing global south countries, who have been taking more of a neutral or like we're gonna condemn but we're we're gonna like stop short of supporting sanctions and stuff like that yeah and i think there's been a lot of like question about like what you know what what's what what gives here and i think you know there's a certain amount of a lot of these countries do have alliances or business or political ties to russia but yeah. i think there's also a recognition of like of people understanding that ukraine is being flagrantly violated in its rights and the ukrainian people are under threat right now by russian nationalism under putin mm -hmm. but on the other hand nato and the bloc of eu countries the united states canada you know those sorts of countries at the end of the day this is still a system that is designed to prevent countries in the global south from doing their own thing whether it is socialism nationalism Marxist Leninism, whatever it's going to be, um, that ultimately we do not want to see the strengthening, even if the Ukrainian people, for you know a pretty goddamn logical reason, are now becoming very, very pro-NATO mm -hmm. uh, over the last few months. I think the rest of the world is like, we want an independent Ukraine. The United States is going to do what it's going to do. It's going to send those weapons and impose those sanctions no matter what anybody else does. And um, ultimately, this war is going to be over someday, but NATO is still going to be around. Um, yeah. And I think that's like a really difficult place to sort of feel like, how do we have like a principled position on this sort of thing? Because mm -hmm. like, I don't want NATO, like, the, the arms flow from NATO for NATO to get greater like budgets for more countries to join it. Like, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> that that, yeah. that makes me, that makes my Guatemalan ass very nervous. Uh, personally, and especially considering how much mission creep over its existence, especially since the fall of the Soviet Union, that um, the NATO alliance, uh, you know, not every single bombing in the world happens under the NATO charter, but a lot of them do. It's and it's certainly a toolbox in the imperialist. Uh, well, it's it's a tool in the imperialist toolbox. There we go. Um, yeah. But um, let's let's back up a bit, and because I do want to talk a little bit more specifically about Ukraine. Um, and to so we've talked a lot about Russia. I think we have a pretty good, done a pretty good overview of um, Russia in the '90s and bringing us, you know, how did Putinism arise, um, and the complicity of the West and the United States. But to talk about Ukraine itself, um. I think for me, one of the things that's been frustrating has been the assumption that the Soviet Union's, and I'm not here to get into the whole subject of was the Soviet Union imperialist or not. Like, I'm, that's, I feel like that's, it's such a weird academic, like Marxist sort of conversation to have. Mm -hmm. um, but I think more to focus on the question of like in real terms, what is the difference between, let's say, uh, the Soviet Union's approach towards nationalism and um, local cultures, local languages um, versus how the Russian Federation does it. And, you know, we could even compare it to what were things like, uh, you know, during the Russian, uh, the pre-revolution 
uh, Russian Empire and look at these three different periods. And I want to use that as a framework. Let's talk about like what really has been the effect of the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of Putinism when it comes to countries like Ukraine being allowed to have their own cultures and their own borders and their own, you know, self-determination. Yeah. And, and I'll just, I'll just start this out by saying that I am not a Sovietologist. I am not someone who, who pretends to have a deep sure. expertise of the USSR, but I'd like to pretend I at least know a, a bit here and there. And it looks like the Soviet model. And I'm not saying this as, as an endorsement nor a condemnation, just as, <laughs> as an evaluation of how they seem to go about it was to create Soviet socialist republics under the command of the USSR that still were kind of nationally of their own identity. Um, that they were, were they were sev- they were seen as several separate Soviet republics and Soviet republic is like a, a critical phrase in on two levels on both those counts it is a Soviet controlled separate republic um, with its own again kind of granted its own linguistic cultural identity that was nevertheless politically subsumed within the USSR um, how whatever form that took um, and if we're going to go to past parallels that's not the model being pursued right now. Um, if we're going to go to past parallels, as you hinted at a second ago, uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine and much of Russia's, you know, right wing nationalist revanchism is arguably closer to the approach of the czarist era and of imperial Russia that predated the USSR, where it's an attempt to expand um, the, the territorial control of surrounding areas. Um, and again, it's very neatly the case where, again, Putin himself has come out and condemned Lenin's choice to make uh, the Ukraine its own territorial entity. And the areas that, as we, we touched on earlier, that are being absorbed by Russia militarily under force and aggression um, and through like some some clever political maneuvering as well over the past eight years, uh, the places that it actually now currently has military occupation in are the areas that correspond very closely to the areas that were subsumed by Tsarist Russia during the imperial era and brought into Russia proper within what was the, the territory of imperial Russia. And I think that's a more useful framing um, for this. And, um, and it's, 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 again, it's a very strange combination of what we're dealing with is a strategic and political environment that was born of shock therapy and the, um, and the, the jarring and, 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 and terribly transformative impact it had on Russia's society, as well as NATO's, um, expansion um, being seen as a security threat by Russia, um, leading into this current moment that led to um, Putin making what I would describe as both the most monstrous and the stupidest option on the table. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting, too, if you don't mind me going into this for a bit about like kind of the, the, the choice of invasion and the moment of invasion. For sure, please. For, for a lot of time, uh, Putin was seen as a, a cold-eyed, very practical strategist. Um capable of, of overseeing things that were monstrously brutal, like the subjugation of Chechnya um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, but who is, who is capable, one who is capable of overseeing again cynical and deeply brutal actions, but in pursuit of Russia's power under his auspices in a way that was seen as fundamentally rational. Like in a very, um, in a very again, cold-eyed way, stoking insurgency in, in pro-Russian areas is, produces violence and destabilization, but it is, a, a move that could potentially pay dividends. Um, and I think why a lot of people didn't expect him to invade, myself included, and as as well as people who are, are infinitely more knowledgeable about Russia and Russian society than myself, including Russians, many Russians and U- Ukrainians, why they didn't think um, Russia would invade Ukraine is it would just have way too many dangerous consequences for Russia. Like, 
and would possibly blow up in its face. Like given all the options on the table, attempting a full sale full scale conventional invasion was potentially um, the most self-destructive option, which kind of brings to the question of why Putin did it. And there are a lot of, of self-ordained Putinologists who declare themselves experts on the man's psychology, and I'm not going to pretend again be that. But I can kind of take a gander as to why he did something this irrational and extreme. Um, for starters, he's reached a point in his career, as I'd mentioned earlier, where he's become much closer to a true uh, de facto dictator of Russia. Like in a lot of autocracies, it's not uncommon for the primary ruler to have an inner circle of advisors that might be able to push back or offer counsel of their own. It's, it's more ruled by junta than it is ruled by a singular figure. Um, but Putin's transformation of the Russian state around himself is so complete at this point um, that even other oligarchs and officials seem to be scared of offering dissent um, and, and, and being able to push back or offer opposing strategic counsel. Um, he's also apparently been deeply isolated during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, people will share memes and funny photos of like Putin being at the end of a very long table speaking to a microphone at someone who's like at the other opposite end. But as funny as those images are, that's kind of where he's been. Like, you know, COVID and isolation made a lot of people weird. Um, and Putin apparently not, uh, you know, not not among them. There's, um, a, there's a little bit of like a Charles Foster Kane almost um, – uh, Howard Hughes sort of like thing going yeah. as far as like, I kind of, I would, I can understand wanting social distancing, but also the, the optics of the log table, it, it right. feels a little super villainish almost at times. It does. And I wonder if he's, is peeing in jars at this point, speaking of Howard Hughes anyway, <laughs> but like, yeah, again, that's, that's kind of like where things have gone. Putin's also getting old and, you know, he's likely fixated on his legacy at this point. Um, and all of that, again, particular, uh, and I want to emphasize the singular power in his hands alone, mixed with age and like total personal isolation may have made this kind of idiosyncratic irrationality, I think, a bit more likely. Um, yeah. And and again, it's it's not a good choice, like both in terms of cold strategic logic, but also like basic human decency. Um, and it, so we're dealing with the, you know, the fallout of that. And yeah, again, we can also like touch a bit on the. Um, kind of the the Russian imperial um, movement and, and the far right. Um, people talk a bit about figures like Alexander Dugin. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a Russian fab for those. Uh, I don't know a ton about him, but like everything I've heard, including like some of his weird like American brown left allies, like it's yeah. weird cultish stuff. It's it's really really weird. Um, and, and Dugan, he's he's basically like for for those for those of you who haven't heard that name, and if you haven't heard of Dugan, I'm 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 happy for you. Seriously, <laughs> um, you're better off for it. He's basically a Russian fascist, like a literal self-described fascist political philosopher whose work is purportedly very popular and, and widely read among contemporary Russian police and in military academies. Um, and in Putin, and excuse me, not Putin, Dugan um, has much more fondness for the image of a monarchical imperial Russia than he does for Lenin and the Soviet era, for example. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, there's also bits about how like again, Putin, Dugan is, I think, worthwhile to look into um, in framing the mindset of a revanchist expansionist Russia um, and, and those who abide by that. But another weird little wrinkle is Putin has tried to frame this as a quote unquote denazification effort. And to protect Russian speakers and ethnic Russians in Ukraine, which have, at least from my reading, an almost morbidly funny echo back to George W. Bush, uh, naming you sort of framing the invasion of Iraq in similarly moralistic terms, calling it essentially a strike against terrorism. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, like by memory, this invasion was Putin's attempt to assert or even expand Russia's sphere of influence through blood and violence um, and doing so in a way. And we'll get into the consequences of this that are clearly just slingshotting back in his face. 
I, I feel like uh, that that allusion to the Iraq War clicked with me because I think I already mentioned I don't I don't I feel like these World War II analogies don't make sense. I yeah. think I think a lot of people on the Marxist left wanted to sort of come up with a model more similar to the World War One situation. Yeah. Um, as far as like revolutionary defeatism, which listeners, longtime listeners of the show will remember was sort of Lenin's idea of um, every, you know, working class and like working class party involved in the war should oppose their own country um, and turn this into an international civil war. Now, the difference between now and then is back then. Well, there's a few differences, but one big one being. In World War One, you had a world international of the socialist parties who had been voting and debating on what to do during what they knew was coming, a world war. And so when World War One started, the situation you had was all these countries, uh, all these um, socialist parties of the Second International had already decided when this war breaks out. We are going to strike. We are going to, you know, shut down like trains from carrying troops and supplies. And our collective efforts in all of these different countries will prevent this war from even happening. Uh And that will and, you know, of course, that will turn into social, you know, socialist revolution, yada, 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 Um, which and that is a position I think for that historical period made absolute sense. And I completely agree with it. And I think right now it doesn't quite work. It doesn't quite apply for a few reasons, but one being like we don't have a bunch of socialist parties with links with each other who have like already figured out how do we respond to a conflict between Russia and the U.S. or an invasion of Russia into Ukraine or any of these scenarios. We don't have that model. So for me, I think like the historical, the only like historical like war, I can think of this really reminds me of is the Iraq war. And in the Iraq war, you also had a situation where you had a global anti-war movement that was huge and robust, but accomplished nothing because there, you know, there certainly was no stopping of trains or obstructing of the war from happening. And the, well, there were a few small, but not in any mass wide scale way that if we had a more organized internationalist left we could have done and i think with the with the current war it has been interesting seeing like so i I saw the washington post caught up uh to the news that um i think on some of the left news i've been reading we already knew about the belarusian uh, railway workers shutting down um supplies and trains that were heading to support the war in uh in the invasion of ukraine Uh um I saw the Washington Post caught up with it like a month later and like was writing about it all glowingly. But like we also had Greek workers who were shutting down uh, and preventing uh, uh, NATO armed supplies from going to Ukraine. And I think um, and I think on the left, both of those things were or at least on the Marxist left, both of those actions were celebrated. Um, But I think it's 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 a tough situation right now because uh, I think the left doesn't really have any power and it doesn't have mm-hmm. an organization to like, we have opinions, but like none of them, none of them actually matter. Um, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. I think that's been, that's been sort of demoralizing is realizing. I think this has been illuminating as to um, how disorganized and kind of, I don't want to say academic because uh, 
you know, I think there's a good chunk of the meme left, which I think calling it academic would be a, a, a bit too far. Yeah. Um, but there certainly has been feeling like there's sort of like a, we don't really know what to think. So uh, what does, what is the, what is uh, like leftist memes caucus or whatever? Tell me to th- that I should be thinking about this, uh, this war in Ukraine right now. Um, but anyway, I wanted to, um, so I know you said you're not a Sovietologist, but to make the point of, um, Vladimir Putin, when he announced the invasion, I remember that struck me that he specifically cited Lenin as being like, Ukraine isn't a real thing. It's something that the Bolsheviks created under Lenin. And I thought that was fascinating because for me, you know, my, what I know is more Russian revolution, early Soviet history is recalling that that really was one of the reasons that the Bolsheviks were, you know, not everybody supported them. But of all the different factions in the Russian Civil War, they were the ones that ultimately had the most popular support, in part because whatever hesitations nationalists in the different parts of the Russian Empire or former Russian Empire might have had towards Bolshevism, um, similar with the peasantry, they recognized the Bolsheviks and the, um, their position on the national question to be the closest to what they wanted by which, you know, like you alluded to earlier, allowing people to speak their own languages, to have their own history, to be able to have their own national life. And it wasn't like, you know, throughout the history of the Soviet Union, you also have examples where it, the Soviet Union did not live up to that idea. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think particularly under Stalin, where you have, Oh yeah. I think the probably the the darkest chapter when it comes to the national question being the deportations of uh, the Tartars and of a few other uh, ethnic and national groups. Chechens, um, Dagestanis, English. Oh, yeah. Correct. Um, and, you know, the claim being that like, oh, well, some of them had collaborated with the Nazis. And it's like, well, go after those guys. Don't deport the entire population. Um, so you have like periods of the Soviet Union's history where things like that happened. But on like the whole, if you take the totality of the history, it just doesn't compare to what things were like under the Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. And to and we can talk about this shortly, the kind of rhetoric that is coming out of Putin's Russia towards the Ukrainians. And I think it's it's tricky because we don't want to, you know, stumble into the realm of like atrocity denial. I think we've talked about that in past episodes. That's mm-hmm. not something we both really find very irksome, but also recognizing that because, you know, both you, you and me grew up in, in and have lived most of our lives in the United States, um, in our political culture, in our historical memory, a lot of it is filled with very, very, minimally sourced unreliable accounts that we take as true about what happened during the Soviet Union as far as like oh it was just an empire and uh did all these mm-hmm. terrible things and whatnot but i think you know one of the things i thought was fascinating reading um uh uh vladislav zubak's book was he early on in the history when he's talking about uh gorbachev i believe sometime in the late 80s having his conflicts with uh uh, nationalists in different countries, particularly in, uh-huh. U- in Ukraine, where he ultimately uses, he uh, he references using the threat of a ref- referendum as something that he could use to basically call their bluff. Because mm-hmm. he knew, and in, I think the book makes the case that 
uh, it doesn't directly make the case, but sort of a lot of what it talks about implies that in, you know, the late 80s, if there had been a referendum in Ukraine, and I believe Ukraine is one of the countries where there was no referendum in 1991, but right. had there been one certainly in the late 80s, the majority of Ukrainians probably would have voted to keep the Soviet Union together, um, even if they wanted like reforms of some kind that yeah. likely a complete separation from that union was not going to happen. And that that was something that was politically understood in the late 80s. Um, now, flash forward to present and the situation we have now. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, as far as the kind of influence uh, that the far right in Russia has on the policy of how this war is being conducted, um, including like what's the rhetoric that is coming from officials, from supporters, uh, and like how much of this is coming from the top, uh, how much of this is like coming from your, your orders from above, uh, how much of the, the atrocities and the mass killings in Ukraine, um, you know, give, give us some context for what's going on, uh, if you could. Yeah. So I, again, to, to hearken back to 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 Alexander Dugin and the Russian far right, that is a kind of a, a increasing ideological foundation of Russian revanchism. And like the as is very common among right wing politics of any kind, it hinges against the demonization and um, and and degradation rhetorically or eventually physically through violence of those deemed outside the national sphere on um, those who are not among the chosen empire or the chosen ethnic group. And if you look at a lot of the statements from Russian officials, it's very much an attempt to to cast the Ukrainian people, the ethnic Ukrainians, as as themselves wholesale complicit in what is dubbed Nazi, you know, the the Nazification of the country. Um, it is also something that is is not been remarked upon as much, but there is um, a certain degree of anti-Semitism as well against Zelensky. I'm describing him as, you know, I think they're the rendering of Sophia in Sophia words is he's a perfidious Jew, you know, kind of going through that old czarist, um, mind you, um, rent anti-Semitic rendering. Um, and that has also not just like that, obviously, but the general demonization of the people of Ukraine has been inculcated, I think, from the bottom up in the Russian armed forces. Um, because if, if you see in any location where you have an increasingly right wing military uh, apparatus, um, or law enforcement apparatus, the state security apparatus, so much of the bonding within the ranks and ideological indoctrination rests on saying that, you know, this X, Y, or Z ethnic group or country you are invading or, 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 or you know, going to be subjecting violence to, they deserve it. They have it coming. Um, and that has, has seemed to have been, again, a combination of, of, you know, kind of upper level rhetoric, as well as I think, you know, the Russian armed forces being conducive to the spread of kind of this right wing ideology. Um, it being, uh, a, a foundational part of, you know, a certain degree of morale. And it's not like saying that I'm not saying that literally every Russian conscript is, you know, is, you know, a seething, you know, Duganist nationalist. Um, you know, there are a lot of, you know, Russian conscripts who are clearly not happy about this. Um, but you can very clearly see how that has played into the, the massacres, like what we saw at Bucha, for example, and, and what's being uncovered. It's, you know, being used as a way of, of, of greasing the wheels of atrocity and kind of enabling violence, um, without conscience, which is what you need to do. That dehumanization process needs to be uh, vital, and it seems to be happening um, both on a, a kind of grassroots level, but it's also being given lots of encouragement from Russian military command. I, I think I, I would love to you to talk a little bit more about that, if you can, because uh, I recall something that I thought uh, that was interesting early in the invasion was um, 
first of all, there was like a significant amount of protests that were happening in Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, There was the obvious lack of morale of the Russian troops invading. I remember like watching all these videos that were popping up of like Ukrainians just like walking up to these Russian soldiers, just hanging out, broken down like APCs and just like, like, oh, do you need a tow back to Russia or back to Belarus or whatever it was and, and things like that. And I remember hearing like there were early reports and, you know, early reports, you can never rely on them. Mm -hmm. Um, Early reports of like the, the, the invasion is like had some amount of restraint as far as like what they were targeting. But Uh then like within a few weeks, it seemed like, no, they are pretty much targeting civilians. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's no such thing as precision bombing period, but it seemed like they were really not trying Mm -hmm. to avoid civilian casualties. Um, is there anything to the idea that the initial Russian invasion wasn't quite as ruthless, but then the ruthlessness can like increased as time went on for whatever reason? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not even sure I would necessarily frame it in those terms. I think that there was uh, almost confusion in the Russian ranks um, when they were sent in. You know, there was like a, a understanding of holy shit, we're actually doing this. Um, I to give kind of an operational analysis of the outbreak of the war. Please do. Um, kind of like, and weave through that. Um, and there'd been like a long simmering tensions along the Ukraine-Russian border, as you know. Russia had a history of amassing or leaving forces on its border with Ukraine, and they're not really doing anything. Um, in terms of like an actual conventional invasion, this ha- was happening for months. Um, and I originally had assumed Russia's most likely course of action would involve sending its formal armed forces into the Donbass and the much more pro-Russian eastern border districts and, and more formally claiming these as quote-unquote autonomous republics that were just like actually Russian puppet states um, and leaving it as such. I was not ex- expecting a wholesale formal invasion because when it was launched, again, it sounds like even within the Russian armed forces, there was not uh, assurance this was going to happen. Um, and, and what was launched was looked like a formal wholesale land invasion to strike into Kiev itself. Um, Kiev being the capital of Ukraine and the seat of government. Um, and that's very much what happened. Like Russia lost an offensive pushed through both its own border as well as through neighboring Belarus, uh, with one major arm of the offensive heading directly toward Kiev, the, the capital of Ukraine and seat of government. It looked like Russia was aiming to engage in a classic, you know, invasion regime, regime change, political decapitation, um, and was going to use military force to again, force regime change and uh the short and sweet of how that turned out is um thankfully very poorly for russia um particularly their attempt to push into kiev which at this point in time again speaking at this is being recorded may 8th 2022 um the invasion into kiev has been fully repelled um and it's clear that russian forces were being ordered to take ukraine's capital and they initially did capture some towns and cities on the route to kiev um, the Russian forces began bombing Kiev on February 25th, uh, three days after the offensive began, and continued to do so in preparation of a likely full-scale assault to capture the city. Uh, and it, then it, it stalled in kind of a stalemate in mid-March before Ukrainian forces launched a counteroffensive that resulted in some pretty serious Russian losses. Um, Russian forces have been repelled from Kiev Oblast at this point uh, and withdrawn from that theater of operations entirely with the attempted Kiev offensive resulting in at least at this point in time, Ukrainian victory and pretty serious casualties and, and just general um, humiliation for the Russian military. I mean, there are a whole host of reasons for, for why that was such a, a face plight. It was like, obviously just horrific for, for the Ukrainians in that area, including as we talked about a moment ago, the massacre in the basically upper middle-class quiet suburb of Bucha, 
where the Russian uh, soldiers came through and, and slaughtered. At this point in time, it's been estimated no less than 400 Ukrainian civilians. So it's, the total is almost certainly going to uh, reach higher than that. But breaking down like why things, you know, didn't go well for the Russians. We touched a bit on the cool aspects of, of the Belarusian opposition, um, you know, the kind of the working class and labor assistance using various forms of sabotage to hamper uh, Russia's logistics and rail lines. Um, looks like kind of the the what, what exists of the anarchist left in Ukraine was a big part of that uh, as well. Um, there's also been some interesting, really clever work on behalf of Ukrainians. Um, again, highly motivated Ukrainian civilians, not even taking up arms necessarily, engaging in various forms of like um, assent, uh, assistance to the armed forces, like engaging in like reconnaissance and targeting assistance, um, basically giving notification of Russian positions, um, stations, etc., um, and the pathing and, and transit routes of Russian forces, um, which has allowed them to be much more easily targeted by drones or artillery. Um, so there's a lot of very clever and brave and determined resistance across all parts of Ukrainian society. Um, and yeah, it's, again, to, to, to circle back to what I said earlier, it's very clear that even the Russian military was taken by surprise here uh, and didn't seem to be expecting to be deployed to this extent. You know, um, there were reports of Russian conscripts reportedly not even aware they'd entered Ukraine yet, um, <laughs> God, which is wild, um, uh, a very poor morale. Like, I think there are a lot of Russians that were uh, conscripts uh, that saw this not wrongly as fratricide um, because there are a lot of Russians who have like family in Ukraine. Um, you know, like cousins, relatives, siblings, um, which led to a lot of very poor morale. Um, I think, you know, in general, like Russian conscripts are not known for being particularly well trained. Um, and also like Russians, uh, Russian armor, like tanks and armored vehicles being abandoned um, by, you know, by, by Russian soldiers that either didn't want to move further, who thought they were being marched into a death trap, who thought this was a bad idea. Um, it's also, you know, winter, uh, later winter is also a terrible environment time of year uh, in which to be rolling through with tanks. And like Russians offensive is like pretty armor heavy. Um, and you have like a lot of open and very muddy terrain in which tanks can get bogged down in, uh, which the Ukrainian forces seem to have taken advantage of to use uh, drone technology to launch strikes against Russia's various armored vehicles, um, which they are which they are very vulnerable to as they're like in the process of, of of moving in transit before they're dug down. You know, it's very easy to launch drone strikes on those kind of, uh, of transitory movements. Um, tanks have always been kind of a death trap, um, and slow moving <laughs> armor is is always been vulnerable or to artillery. Um, in the age of drone warfare, being able to drop that from above using fast moving aerial tech onto tanks makes it even more of a liability. Um, Russia's reportedly lost a ton of tanks, either from drones or RPGs, um, or as, as we'd said from Russian tank pilots, basically saying, fuck this, I'm out and just getting out and fleeing. Um, so you have a whole host of reasons for why Russia has just fumbled, especially on the way to Kiev. Um, another thing too, I think that's kind of important to point out here is Russia also has an extremely hierarchical and rigid military structure in which lower level officers are restricted in their ability to give commands and orders in the field. Um, and this leads to a lot of operational inflexibility, especially when things don't play out as high command assumed. Um, and, you know, this looks like a situation under which maybe not even high command fully made the call to invade. And when you're dealing with like fumbling logistical difficulties, um, and like a singular order, like you are just going to drive into Kiev at all costs and you're not driving into Kiev very effectively and you're not given the opportunity to like, you know, improvise or maneuver outside of the direct hierarchical, hierarchical commands. It's going to lead to get even more fumbling. Like it's it's been 
it's it's only made the Russian invasion more brittle and its units less, units less operationally effective. Uh, casualties have apparently been pretty serious on the Russian end of things. Like some estimates place Russia's casualty rate at seven to eight percent of the total forces that have been formally deployed, which is just devastating. Like those are crushingly high. Um, like inching close to a classic decimation, aka just ten percent of your forces being being gone. Um, which is not to say that like Russia's failures at capturing Kiev didn't result in some pretty horrible atrocities. Um, and in many ways, like a few armies are more likely to commit brutality against civilians than a tactically ineffective one that's facing stalemate and loss and is ground down and frustrated. Like uh, when when the Russians were driven from the cities and towns near Kiev, like evidence and, and reports of cruelty and murder against civilians emerged. You know, Bucha has been the most inf infamous account. Um, you know, and it's almost certainly the civilian death toll as investigations and more thorough you know, uh, research, you know, unfolds, it's likely to be much higher. Uh, this is a particularly grim one and apologies to your, to your viewers here or your listeners, but apparently rape against young women and girls has been weaponized as a way of terrorizing Ukrainians, um, in these areas. And that's kind of like that brushes up against one of the really difficult things here, which is like, there's a very like motivated Ukrainian civil defense, or at least assistance to, um, their, you know, armed forces or, or, or even militias, um, you know, as a way of stopping Russian aggression, which, you know, the Russian forces, I'm assuming, used as, quote unquote, legitimization for, for murder and, and torture and rape. Um, so that was, you know, something that happened and it's being increasingly covered as Russian forces are, have been pushed um, out of um, out of the Kiev uh, oblast. And at this point in time, it seems that Russia has refocused its efforts on capturing, fully capturing the eastern provinces, particularly Donetsk, which falls within the quote-unquote Donetsk People's Republic that Putin uh, has, you know, declared to be basically a Russian proxy territory under, under its control. Um, the second largest city in Donetsk, uh, Oblast, uh, Mariupol, has been under siege and mass bombardment by Russian forces since February 24th. Like about 95% of the city has been destroyed at this point. Like over 20,000 Ukrainian civilians have reportedly been killed. Um, the only major holdout left as of speaking, aka, you know, May 8th, 2022, is uh, only major holdout in, in what is left in a almost completely ruined Mariupol um, is the Azov-style steel plant, which is the steel plant of one of Ukraine's largest metallurgic companies, where both Ukrainian forces and militia have been hiding out along with civilians, uh, with the last of the non-combatants apparently fled. But there's a, a really intense dugout resistance in one like major steel plant um, in in uh, Mariupol. And what I'm what happened in Mariupol is what I was worried would happen were Russia to have been more successful in Kiev and potentially in other parts of Ukraine as well. Like, while Russia's post-Soviet army is dysfunctional in many ways and obviously horrible logistics, um, it has invested a lot of resources in training and artillery and bombardment capacities as a way of just like destroying, um, you know, territories and, and subjugating through them through terror and slaughter. Um, you know, it's what, what Putin oversaw in the Second Chechen War, like what, you know, happened in Grozny, like just the mass flattening of Grozny from the from a distance as a way of you know subjugating the city and not directly engaging the much more combat effective uh insurgents um and i'd argue what we've seen in mariupol is basically just the grozny uh, method in action and like one of the bitter ironies of this war is that the populations in eastern ukraine who might have been sympathetic or at least uh, neutral towards russia before the war like including many like russian speakers now almost certainly loathe russia for just like the sheer horror and destruction russian forces have inflicted on their city uh, and the surrounding areas and to like get into like the the NATO side of things like in terms of the assistance that NATO and the US are providing Ukraine um, NATO and the US are funneling weapons and ammunition including anti-tank and anti-aircraft shoulder fired weapons as a way of inflicting maximum casualties and bogging down Russian forces uh, providing weapons at this scale is both financially 
and logistically taxing, and I'm unsure how long that can be sustained. Um, the U.S. is also apparently providing the Ukrainian forces with considerable amounts of targeting intelligence that is only further allowing them to strike both Russian armor as well as kill like multiple Russian generals and, and members of high command at this point. Um, and this is like a really thorny one, and I might be putting myself in a controversial territory, but in many ways, I, I feel about providing material and logistics support to Ukraine, similar to how I felt about the U.S. doing the same for the Kurds in Syria. Like, while modern Russia is is largely a, a monster of, of the mess America created, especially the Clinton administration, just as ISIS emerged, like, directly and overwhelmingly due to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, providing non-direct military support for people caught in those terrible consequences and facing subjugation or death as a result of, of the same is probably the least bad option. Um, given those, I'm not saying it's not going to have consequences, but, like, I'm not super bothered by what the NATO and US, and U.S. are doing right at this exact moment um, in that area. I could totally eat my words. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, like, that's one well, of those areas where I look at this and I think that's not unreasonable. Well, um, I, I think, it, I think it, it brings back to what I was saying or maybe alluding to earlier of, like, I think under these circumstances where the anti-imperialist left or whatever you want to call it, doesn't really have power and is not yeah. especially organized and whatnot. It's like, you know, we don't have a card to play here and uh, yeah. the U S and NATO is going to do what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. I think, and I think for me personally, it's like, I think it's, it's a tricky balance to, you know, I think I'm a little bit more on the side of like, I don't think that we should be, you know, cause NATO is going to do what it's going to do. It's going to provide weapons to people who in this particular case, have a legitimate grievance, have a legitimate threat uh, in their country to deal with. But on the other hand, so can I just complain for a moment? I keep seeing the, the meme going around of like the Russians are about to find out why Americans don't have health care. And like for me, it's like, <laughs> I get it. It's, it's kind of funny, but also like that kind of comes to the heart of my position of like, well, on the one hand, they already have these weapons. Yeah. And they're going to do what they do. I don't think we should be calling for them to be giving it to the Ukrainian people. But, like, I'm not going to begrudge the Ukrainian people for accepting them. On the other hand, yeah. on the other hand, it's like the ability of NATO, the infrastructure and the money and the ability, the, the, the machinery that is required to arm Ukraine is something that I oppose, certainly, that it even exists at all. And for me, it's yeah. like people don't want to take into account like, OK, somebody who dies by a bomb, that's bad. But how many fucking people in this country died because we spent money on those bombs that sometimes I guess, I mean, there's no such thing as a nice bomb. But like sometimes it's like, well, I guess it's it, they're dropping it. I'm not the best person. So, you know, sure, let's yeah. blow up some Russian tanks. But like for me, it, it comes down to like, for example, in the 90s, I, we, di we didn't even talk about this number. I was um, reading the abstract of one of the studies on um, number of excess deaths that occurred in the 90s uh, mm. using the numbers of deaths that were happening, I believe, in like 90, 91. And then, you know, using all the I, I'm not, you know, I'm not an academic who does this study. Basically, they found that there were about I think it was like two to three million excess deaths that happened in the 90s in the Russian Federation yeah. as a result of the destruction of the, that economy. And for me, 
I think for me, it's like, yes, the funny meme about they're about to find out why Americans don't have health care, but it comes back to the whole idea of nobody cares about that number. Nobody knows that. Nobody in the media I've been seeing has even brought it up. The fact that two to three million people died as a result of the economic program imposed on Russia in the 90s. Um, you're going to hear all about the thousands of Ukrainians who, you know, citizens and in, in, uh, 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 civilians who have been slaughtered in this current war. But at the end of the day, and I think that's something, again, why the global South is being a little bit more ambivalent about this whole conflict is because we have a little bit more of a holistic understanding of death and misery. It's not yeah. only because the U.S. invades. What happens in, be in between the U.S. invasions is policy. It's inane. It's boring stuff. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, the shit that goes on in the shadows of people just dying of preventable diseases or because, you know, for, you know, for whatever reason. But at the same time, yeah, you're right. It's like, I also like, don't necessarily want to get too much in my high horse wagon about like the Ukrainians being able to defend themselves at the same time. It's, it's a real clusterfuck of a situation. Yeah, no, and it's, it's again, like, this is why this is why it's important if you want to have a, a deeper fundamental analysis here, why historical myopia is not your friend. Because, like, there are a whole host of, like, choices, policy choices that led up to this moment, like, that led up to to the, the conflagration and the misery of this moment. Again, we, we talked a lot about, like, shock therapy and the horrors that unleashed, like, the, the, the deaths in Russia that could have been prevented. Um, you look at, like, NATO expansion that, you know, only made NATO a, a more you know, imposing uh, and, and money and resource hungry military entity um, and that pushed into Eastern Europe as Russia was was just starting to, you know, kind of like reassert itself, um, which led to Ukraine being wedged in between that. Well, at the same time, you know, we talk about the opportunity cost of, you know, of again, that, that meme about, you know, Russians are about to realize why Americans don't have health care, like, you know, the opportunity cost of, of militarism. And of course, people, there, there are plenty of people who could sort of flap their hands in the air and say, this is, you know, idealistic lefty bullshit. This, this point we reach right now was inevitable. There's no, no other possibility of, you know, this outcome. And, and the truth is no, no, things could have turned out differently. History is made of hinge points and the hinge points um, that brought us to this particular horrific outcome, like were a series of deliberate policy choices um, that had consequences. And those consequences are, you know, a greater scope of, of human misery, of, of precarity, of, of, extreme um you know extreme inequality both in russia and the united states um and again a you know a an empowered revanchist right-wing dictatorship in russia having an imperial fantasy of of reclaiming the ukraine that you know was born and you know has been realized in bloodshed so it's yeah it's i i'm, I'm with you there it's you know there's both you know the realities of the moment but also the realities of what brought us to this moment um and those are hard things to reckon with. There's no easy, straightforward answer. This is not a Manichaean thing. Um, and I think you'll, you'll see a lot of folks, you know, trying to trying to say this, this valorizes NATO. Or you'll find like weirdos and like kind of like the, the quasi, you know, quasi red brown, but really like you know, fascist, um, you know, fascist new right pretending to at least be left glorifying Russia. And it's like, no, um, this is the sort of thing where the situation was created by by various forms of malfeasance. And you, you shouldn't be glorifying any major political block here because um, they all, all have their own culpability. Um, I wanted you to talk, you referenced the different hinge points of history. Um, uh -huh. I, want you, I want to see if you could talk about one of those hinge points, which would be um, the 
Euromaidan protests, I guess that would have been like 2013, 2014 now. Yeah. Um, Because I think uh, that's something that I remember happening a number of years ago and having relatively little context for. I I was still kind of a a baby Marxist. Uh, I, I, you know, I'd studied history, but Eastern Europe was like something I only kind of knew. And I remember that was around the first time that I heard about, for example, things like uh, the right sector in Ukraine mm-hmm. or the, yeah. the uh, um, and eventually the creation of the Azov uh, battalion, which the Russians are really playing up as their casa's belly for invading. Uh-huh. And, and then now we're hearing a lot of people in the U.S. and in the West um, whose position on that is like um, interesting. Well, well, we'll get to that. Let me yeah, stay on track here. Stick to your Maidan for now. Mm-hmm. Um, and like one of the things that I remember around that time was also the question of to what extent was that a popular revolt against, um, you know, against an unpopular president? How much of that was a U.S. backed coup? Um, I remember what well, I think it was on on Democracy Now back in the day hearing and probably it was the FSB that provided this audio to the media that leaked it. Yeah. Um, the, the audio of um, the folks from the U S state department, basically having the conversation about like, okay, so who's going to be in charge, you know, after this and yeah. that sort of thing. So could you uh, give the listeners a little bit of, if, if you can um, sort of a brief sort of background for what actually happened um in during the Euro Maidan protests and how that is relevant to uh, the current uh, the current war uh, in Ukraine. Yeah, um, I'd say in terms of hitch points, like when Euro Maidan was happening, the snowball was already rolling. Like I think we we're pretty much on our current trajectory, um, but it did have like some very important like impacts. Um, in the Euromaidan protests and 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 what was referred to as I think as the or as the kind of the Euromaidan revolution, I guess was when were a series of popular uh, protests against the the pro-Russian um, the pro-Russian uh, head of state. I'm actually have to just like have to look up exactly how to pronounce his name uh, because again, not a Russian speaker. But yeah, it was you know protests against um, the government of of Yanukovych, um, uh, who was seen not wrongly as a very pro-Russian and Russian-aligned figure who like had come into power. Um, under what were widely assumed to be, um, you know, corrupt and 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 false charge and false um, kind of election meddling, um, and you know he had become you know oppressive against the um, the kind of the anti-Russian, more pro-NATO or or U.S. EU friendly political opposition, and you know there was a series of, of civil demonstrations and, and uprisings against him, and I think with some degree of legitimacy that you know the belief that he had come into power, that Yanukovych had come into power through not purely democratic means. Um, and it received support, uh, and understandably from, you know, um, the, uh, the more powerful overarching political blocks that were aligned with this particular opposition. Um, and it ultimately resulted in Yanukovych being ousted. Like Yanukovych would eventually find sanctuary in Russia. Um, and, you know, the the government that replaced it, the current um, administration of which Zelensky is a member, was one that was much more aligned with, you know, the U.S. and, and NATO and the EU. Um, and uh, w- this was seen, um, this, the, the Euromaidan uprising was not like, this is the kind of thing where the relative popularity of it is very distinct by region uh, and demographic. Um, the Euromaidan uprising was seen with, with immense resentment and hostility in the pro-Russian and ethnically Russian East. Um, and, you know, this sort of process of 
um, two dual administrations um, that have separate, you know, loyalties or allegiances to increasingly opposed and hostile political blocs like Russian Federation versus NATO um, kind of was an accelerant in a way. You could say a hinge point in this sense of, of further entrenching opposing right wing nationalist movements um, because like the um, the war in the Donbass that emerged from the kind of like the counter reaction of, of pro-Russian uh, populations and, and, and militias in the east that really wanted closeness with with their geographic neighbor with Russia um, resulted in some humiliation for for Ukrainian uh, armed forces and for Ukraine because the Ukrainian armed forces were outfought by these these pro-Russian militias that were again clearly receiving with time increasing backing from Russia and Russian special forces. Um, this is where Azov comes in, which is kind of like a counter reaction to that kind of nationalism, the pro-Russian nationalism. There was a kind of a you know a Ukrainian nationalism counter to that, um, where you know far right wing groups that are again hardcore you know Nazi far right in Ukraine emerged as kind of a extremist counter to that, um, and have proven to be very effective fighters. They're not the um, they're obviously not like the totality of, of the Ukrainian armed forces and anyone pretending otherwise is kidding themselves. Like it's, it's, it's a cheap point to make, but like Zelensky is a Slavic Jew. Like he's, he's the kind of person that, you know, um, just by nature of his like very ethnicity who these Nazis would, would spit on otherwise. Um, but it's also led to some complicated things where the Azov battalion has been formally integrated within the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, they are still a, they're a small, but very effective, um, unit within the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, and it's troublesome because they are the only um, one of the only countries, I think, actually the only country in Europe um, where a literal neo-Nazi militia has been legitimized as part of the armed forces. And that's kind of troublesome, too, for me in a lot of ways, because this this takes us from, you know, how we got to where we are with the kind of acceleration of of opposing ideas of right wing nationalism um, really emerging from the Maidan uprising and from the the war in the Donbass, the insurgency there leading us to the present moment. But Again, kind of this might be looking forward too much. If you want to talk about the future implications of, of the war in Ukraine, we can go into that by all means. But one of my concerns is that, again, this increasing violence, this increasing strife, this increasing destabilization will only further legitimize kind of an opposing Ukrainian neo-Nazi extremism because extremism thrives in, in, in moments of violence and destabilization. Um, and the fact that, you know, the Azov Battalion has proven to be very effective um, and, you know, Russia, Russian forces are coming in and again, having a very like degrading, violent, cruel attitude towards ethnic Ukrainians would almost certainly like give a lot of credence to a counter reaction to that. Um, you know, it's it's nowhere near comparable. Um, I'm not saying it is. Trust me, I'm not saying it is. But um, there have been reports that Ukrainian soldiers are and have uh, or in Ukrainian militias have taken like photos of dead Russian soldiers and using various forms of of, of data research have like sent the um the images of the dead russian soldiers directly to their mothers in russia um that's some gangster shit right there <laughs> jesus yeah. christ yeah it's 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 do not fuck around and it's like it's again like war destroys everything war corrupts everything yeah. war makes monsters of men and women if they're participating um and and that's kind of my fear is that we and again the deep irony similar again to the iraq war of how George Bush's claims that, you know, essentially the invasion of Iraq was a counter-terror operation, while in reality it led to the destabilization that gave rise to Salafist extremism and eventually Al-Qaeda and Iraq and ISIS. Similarly, like, this war, if it did somehow spiral into prolonged insurgency and occupation, would probably give new life to the the nascent neo-Nazi factions in Ukraine. 
Yeah, I think so. You know, on the question of the neo Nazis in Ukraine, I think that's something that I found the discourse on this very frustrating as far as mm -hmm. like, I think, you know, the first thing to state here is the threat of neo Nazism in Ukraine has been vastly exaggerated by Putin and by the Russian, uh, Russian, Russian propaganda. Uh -huh. I think that's, I have no qualms about saying that. I think the problem I've been seeing is I think there's been a little bit too much of like among the bourgeois, like media people and even some like, you know, your, your, your Eastern European academics on Twitter to sort of be like, listen, you know, they're not as popular. They're not, they're not especially popular electorally, uh, mm -hmm. which is true. Um, and that like, it's not great, but you know, they are being legitimized by this invasion of Russia. Yeah. Um, and I think to a certain extent, I think I understand that. Um, but I share similar concerns about like, yeah, but then like when this war is over, they're going to come out on top. The Russians are going to lose in some way, shape or form. I think, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but chances are when this is all over, you're going to have a Ukraine in which you have a far right that has more power than it maybe has electorally, mm -hmm. but you know, it's integrated into the, you know, armed forces and it has, a, it's going to gain a lot more popular support as a result of this. I think that oh, is yeah. something we do need to be much more concerned of. I think I saw some academic try to compare, um, try to compare them to Hamas, which mm -hmm. I found to not really be a very helpful comparison. So as far as, you know, when you have something like Hamas, um, where absolutely the founding charter was pretty fucking anti-Semitic. Um, but if you try to find an antecedent in Palestinian history for that sort of virulent anti-Semitism being like widespread in Palestinian society, you can't find that yeah. versus in Ukraine where you have a situation where like, you know, you have much more of a strong, long history, even if in recent years, um, the polling I've been seeing has been showing that like, you know, polling data is always a little bit iffy. How was it done? But I generally accept the idea that Ukraine has developed much, a much healthier attitude towards Jews compared to its historical past. Um, but as far as like, I still think that the comparison between, between the two, it's convenient, but it doesn't really align in a way that I find helpful. I've been trying to think of it more in terms of like, what if the United States got invaded and the Michigan militia became one of the major forces yeah. repelling the invasion of, you know, the, those, those dirty Canucks up North, you know, trying to take our oil or no, they have oil. They don't need it anyway. Um, but you know, you get my point here of where you have these far right folks and, you know, the, the Michigan, the, the militia movement, you know, they're not all neo-Nazis, but like, there's a few of them. And a lot of them, it's like, yeah, they're not into like Nazism, but when you ask them what they actually believe in, it's straight up classic American settler colonial ideology. Mm -hmm. And again, that has a history. And you can say a similar sort of thing right now that, you know, what are Americans attitudes towards, um, you know, black people, Jews and whatnot on the whole, it's better than it used to be. And, but that nonetheless, it, you know, you, it's still, even if it's not quite as, you know, popular as it used to be, have these hard racist, hard settler colonial ideologies as it used to be, mm -hmm. it's so ingrained in our political culture, in our national culture, in our national memory 
that something like getting invaded by a foreign country mm-hmm. would absolutely is absolutely has the potential to unleash some like dangerous stuff. So I don't know that I have like a point to this other than saying like, I think we have, I, I think, yeah, there's got to be a better middle ground here between, oh, like the neo-Nazis can rationalize the Russian, like violating Ukraine's integrity and, and, and murdering all these people versus, yeah. oh, you, uh, the Azov battalion is like Hamas, which I'm like, no, go to hell. <laughs> this, this, that's, that's a lazy, uh, uh, analogy in, in my personal opinion. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think so we we're we've been going off for a little while now. Um I want to talk a little bit about uh what you've been up to over the last 2 years. Um but before that, was there anything else uh I think we we've covered a lot of stuff, but anything else that you wanted to comment on? I think that about covers it. Like this is a sort of topic we could go on for hours. Like we we could even dedicate like an hour to like the strategic implications of this in the long term, but I think we should probably put a pin on it cuz we we've been going on for a bit. But yeah, no, I mean, I appreciate you asking. I'd be happy to go into that. I dedicate, have dedicated the past two years of my life to, to research and writing a book on climate change. Um, essentially, a book that explores the near future consequences uh, for the world order as a whole and for human societies. Um, and again, I'm obviously, you know, even if you just tune into this episode halfway, would, would know I'm a security and conflict analyst. That's my background, focusing on insurgency. But something I realized um, as I started looking more and more into the consequences of climate change um, and ecological collapse is that the the environmental uh, and planetary consequences inflicted by that will potentially be one of the greatest augurs and, and instigators of violence and destabilization our species has ever known. Um, and I, I took that as a foundation for looking into the points of collapse and put together a book that basically, you know, because there's a lot of understanding the general public about the fact that, you know, climate change is leading to droughts, is leading to um, leading to wildfires, just leading to more extreme nat- natural disasters. There's an understanding of some of the major consequences ecologically and, and environmentally, but there seems to be much less understanding of how all of those would play out on a systemic level because climate change essentially attacks the foundations of human civilization, aka things we have all taken for granted, or at least many of us at this point in time, which is the consist- the you know livability of temperatures, of, of, of consistent agricultural production, of access to water, of all sorts of things. And my book plays out on, you know, kind of extrapolates how that would impact human societies, how would it would impact national infrastructure, economies, how it could lead to um, state destabilization, state failure, um, you know, leading, leading to widening uh, gulfs in inequality, um, for example. Um, leading to opposition between people and their governments as governments fail or governments um, seek to, um, as times of scarcity unfold, seek to um, protect certain populations or regions at the expense of others, as well as the consequences of, of mass displacement. So it basically lays out, you know, how unchecked uh, planetary warming would can, would play out over the next 100, 200 years. Um, and, you know, how this could lead to, you know, the essential collapse of, of both human civilization or what we call as such over much of the world, but also habitability. And then taking that highly cheerful foundation, the second half of the book um, examines ways to avoid this. Um, and, and my conclusion, essentially, among other things, is that not merely is, you know, fossil fuel consumption obviously unsustainable, but the very foundation of our political economies is not well suited to weathering the Anthropocene, especially like in a place like the United States, it's radically unequal where there's increasing privatization. Uh, you know, we saw how that played out even during the comparatively minor shocks of COVID-19, like, you know, many yeah. you know smaller firms and smaller businesses went under and the, you know, their 
market share was siphoned up by like Amazon. Um, and so it's, you know, get back to, you know, disaster capitalism to a Naomi Klein topic. Um, the, the apprehension is that our current model just in the U S alone or, or nations that have a similar, you know, neoliberal sort of economically right wing foundation at this point in time will, you know, see increasing dysfunction where, um, disaster is profit off of and what, you know, resources and capital is left is privatized. Um, and that would also, you know, you know, that hyper increasing concentration of power in the hands of a rapacious few of an oligarchy of, you know, capitalist oligarchs as, as the planet itself is thrown into upheaval is a terrible foundation for civilizational sustain sustainability because it will lead to, you know, effectively plunder. Um, like there is a, you know, wrapping up all of this. Um, there is an anecdote that a particular um, journalist and writer named Douglas Rothkopf, I think his name was, was invited to um, a, uh, a summit for a bunch of hedge fund vampires, basically, um, anomaly to give a, a speech uh, and an address on the future of technology. But he was not even like, you know, given a podium or, or, or brought to speak. He was very quickly whisked away into a room from his telling retelling with five, you know, hedge fund um, executives, like find like five hyper rich hedge fund managers um, who basically grilled him on the best way to survive collapse. Like how they would be able to like best maintain their own wealth and their private security forces um, <laughs> and their armed compounds, some of which whom literally had bought compounds. And like he realized that the people who have the greatest wealth in the United States, who are among those who dictate um, the organization of our economy, whose, you know, whose political puppeteering and donation and shadow networks um, dictate, you know, our state policy and our legislation their approach to the climate crisis is how can we hoard as much as possible so the rest of you plebs can't get into our compounds? Um, and like realizing that that is the default trajectory um, that is being tacitly nudged along. And the fact that we could be moving towards, you know, climate serfdom that doesn't actually confront the climate crisis, but really just protects oligarchy and hyperconsumption and capitalism at all costs, even when it becomes almost empirically unsustainable amidst, you know, a planetary crisis um, realizing that and realizing that was a big root of the problem also really drove um, me to write the book. So it deals with both the almost like biblical apocalyptic um, consequences, like, again, mass displacement, war, uh, climate genocides, agricultural failure, um, things like that, uh, you know, eras of, of, of disease um, and emergence of plagues during, uh, you know, a planetary ecological breakdown, but also looks at the fact that like our current modes of, of political and industrial organization of economic command are, are not going to weather this well either and will only make the problem worse and how you need to address the latter in order to make sure the former doesn't get out of hand. Um, so that's it. Very lighthearted, easy, <laughs> skimmable beach reading. Right. Um, but that's what I've been doing. And it would be a pleasure to, you know, if, if I'm not imposing myself by inviting myself again, um, we might be able to have a podcast that kind of discusses that down the line. No, I was sending you to the gulag after this show, so that's not going to work. Fantastic. Yes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that, that me tepidly saying that I'm providing logistical support to your <laughs> resistance um, was wrong. Think um, Our... I, I'm going to be in Siberia now. Listen, all it takes is like the slight sh little bit of a shade of a disagreement between you and I, and then you are out. <laughs> I'm going to Photoshop you out of history. Like, you know, so many Leon Trotsky. <laughs> Yeah, again, like this, this, this is this is this is the woke mob left cancel culture, <laughs> really. Um, oh my! Oh, I hope people know that we're we're joking. This is I, I, uh, I, earlier episodes we've done together have been a lot more jokey, so it's important to have some laughs here every once in a while. Yeah, um, absolutely. 
Well, thank you so much for coming back to the movements to God. We didn't even make a Stalin for time. Eh, eh, kind of thing at the beginning of this. Oh, that should, that, that, that should tell you <laughs> how, how these last two years have gone that I was just like, hello, welcome back to the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we're still alive we're You're welcome welcome to stalin for time <laughs> but you know in all seriousness it was great to talk with you again and uh, i look forward to doing more of this in the future and um yeah can't wait to uh to read that book fantastic kenny likewise it was great to be back the movements is a leftist history and politics podcast subscribe to the podcast on apple podcasts google spotify and stitcher Support the movements at patreon.com slash movementspod.